Welcome to Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about self-reliance and building a more resilient life. Today is episode number five, the final episode in our five-part series on individual emergency preparedness entitled Maintaining the Course and Avoiding Pitfalls. My name is Jeff, your host. Let's get to it. All right, and welcome back. If you're new here to Inside My Canoe Head, uh, I would strongly suggest you go back and listen to the first four episodes in this series in order. Uh, If not, I'm very glad that you're here to join us. And today our goal is to summarize what we've gone through in the first four episodes and talk about the skill set that you need to have to maintain your course on your journey towards individual emergency preparedness and to avoid some of those pitfalls that exist out there that are going to draw you in and potentially take you down a rabbit hole or take you down a tangent that actually is going to take you away from your goal of individual emergency preparedness, which again is based in the fact that we really just want to get people a bit of insurance, a bit of a safety around them, and then really let everybody go on and live your life and be happy and confident and pursue your goals and do the things you would like to do, live where you want to live, and just have yourself a wonderful time here on this one on this planet Earth. But at the same time, you've taken some steps and you've done a little bit of education to provide a preparedness mindset. And therefore, you have a bit of insurance. So in our first episode, we talked about attitude. And and we return to this throughout all the episodes. That individual emergency preparedness is first and foremost an attitude. It is all about a mindset and a lens through which you look at life. We talked a bit about the federal government and some provincial government organizational concepts. We then moved on to a study of demographics. uh, Some vulnerable populations a discussion on resiliency, individual and collective resiliency, just to give you an idea of what academia and research is telling us about what influences people's decision to become prepared or or to not become prepared. And then we had a just frank look at what the true capabilities within the Canadian context of both your federal, your provincial and your municipal governments to come to your aid in the time of a significant incident, which we defined here at Inside My Canoe Head, to be, to be something that overwhelms their ability to respond and to provide you immediate assistance. We covered the idea of the 72-hour social contract that exists between you and your supporting municipality. And in the last episode, we talked about your first steps, what you need to do to start down your individual emergency preparedness journey. Hopefully at this point, what you have sitting in front of you is some form of a plan, a set of tasks, some questions you may need to ask, and some things that have popped up in your head that you're thinking about. I just want to encourage you to continually return to that plan, continually return to those 10 areas of critical infrastructure which support modern society you need to continually look at each one of those to see if something has changed and as you start to answer those questions and as you start to execute those tasks for which you've given yourself and you'll start to see in front of you a a plan will start to emerge and you'll start to see areas where a lot of work needs to be done and areas where you've pretty much got a lot of things covered and and the wonderful part about using the critical infrastructure pieces is that you're building this plan yourself your family and your family-specific needs are different from everybody else's. And, and the point of this theoretical approach to it is that you're designing it based on your needs. You're not downloading a PDF. You're not copying what some ex-Special Forces guy is saying on YouTube or the things that you need to do. 
or somebody is telling you to go buy a wise bucket of food that is nothing but tasteless powdered carbohydrates that's going to totally screw the insides of your body up. If you try to work on it, you'll care about it. And because you develop it, you'll take a bit of pride in it. And the next concept that we really want to develop is that individual emergency preparedness is dynamic. It is not static. You don't exist in a world where you do the plan, you put it away, and you don't go back and look at it because your family changes, your situation changes. You could add, subtract from your family. Uh, kids could move out. You could have new grandkids. You could have a, an elderly member of your family move in with you. You might have a job circumstance change. So you need to keep altering this. It's it's like this. The funny part joke we used to say in the army is a good plan is like jello. You throw it against the wall and it sticks to nothing. But for some strange reason, it sticks together. And because of that, you just got to think of your plan as something that you will have to keep modeling. So we want to look now is how do we maintain the course? How do you stay within that mindset? And it goes back to a couple of key points that I'm going to highlight from the first four episodes. The first one being is that you want to pay attention to the world around you and the things that are happening in the news. And you want to do so in a way to where you're just making sure that you are aware of events that could or may affect how you decide to conduct your life. And the concept is fairly simple and fairly quick. It is just you having a rapid assessment of a piece of information that comes across the news. This event happened in so-and-so. Does that affect me and how I run my life? No, well, then you can consume it as just a regular consumer. You can consume it as something that you're interested in. Maybe it's in a genre where you work, etc. But from an emergency preparedness point of view, your responsibility is to really look at news events that happen both, both locally and in the larger context. And the whole point of this is quite simple. You just want to make sure that nothing is going to impact your life and how you wish to live it beyond your time horizon. Now, if you've chosen a 14 or 30-day time horizon, which is really, which is realistic in the beginning, absolutely without question. A lot of these events may affect you, but you're going to have a sufficient amount of lead time because of your preparedness to make any changes that you need to make based upon the information. If you think it affects you, it is your responsibility then to step a bit further out and start drawing on other facts. Look at public institutions for which you trust. Here in Canada, Canadians, by and large, have a, have a very strong trust in their institutions. I don't mean politicians. We all know they're all bad. It doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on. But from the institutional point of view, when we examine and when we look at things like the Public Health Agency of Canada, Public Safety Canada, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Provincial Emergency Management Organizations, City Managers, we trust these institutions to provide us accurate information. It is your job to get the fact dump the analysis or the forethought or whatever they're telling you, but just take the fact and start to look to see how it affects you. It's a very basic process. That's number one that you need to do to maintain the course. The second thing is in a, in a very interesting point that comes with equipment. As you start to procure some things based upon the analysis you did with the critical infrastructure sectors and you start to bring equipment into your house, you need to be skilled in that equipment. The time to learn how to light a fire is not when you absolutely need to light a fire. And I know it sounds a bit ridiculous, but in the survival and the preparedness world, another genre which I spend a great deal of time in, there is an inverse relationship between your skill level and the amount of equipment necessary to support your existence. So as your skill sets get better, you require less and less equipment. And as well, 
certain pieces of equipment become multi-purpose equipment that you wouldn't think of. Like, for example, once you become exceptionally proficient in the handling of an axe, you can realize that an axe can provide all of your cutting tools, including your vegetables. Now, you may seem ridiculous, but if you can rely on a single tool to do a whole bunch of functions, you start to see the functions fall away. And I'll give you a prime example. That cell phone that's in your hand or right next to you, think for a second how many household appliances, devices, and products that it has replaced in your life. And you are exceptionally savvy at using that device, and it enables you to do a whole host of things that you would need a myriad of other equipment. Your preparedness equipment is not much different than that. So if you get a stove, for example, you go out and you get a nice Coleman stove, best on the market, naphtha stove, to prepare your food in case your electric stove goes down because there's no power. That's great. I've lit naphtha stoves for 20-odd years in the Army, and I still get a four-foot flame some days when I light them. You have to become proficient in how to use your equipment, and you have to become proficient in the maintenance of the equipment. How do you replace a generator, a small little metal piece, and a generator, as they call it, on a Coleman stove? Learning to do that when you don't have access to the Internet is hard to do. And if you don't have the spare part, again, as you start to work with this equipment, you'll start to see there's a little bit extra in spare parts, replacement batteries. These type of things start to make sense to you and what you should have around. So with that, you start getting more familiar with your equipment. And now we want to talk about pitfalls that are out there. And some of the pitfalls you'll find is because once you start getting the individual emergency preparedness mindset, you're going to become far more, or you're going to find yourself far more interested in things on YouTube and websites and blogs. And the problem with a lot of those are, is they're very centered on either selling you something in a commercialized, advertised, monetized space, or they're providing you a certain point of view based upon a lens through which the person looked. And if you remember back to the first episode, and we talked about attitude, that I spoke of it as a lens. So if you're an emergency preparedness individual who has a YouTube channel, and you believe we're on the verge of an economic collapse, and that everybody should took their stocks and bonds, sell it all and get silver and gold to have an exchange in a barter system, you're going to put all of your videos out with that kind of mindset, that avenue, in an attempt to persuade people to your position. The difficulty that we have in emergency preparedness is when you do that, you move away from the aim. The aim is to continue living your life as per normal. These major disruptions are rare Though they can have a significant impact on you, they are rare. And therefore, the vast majority of your time and existence living your life is not going to be affected. When it is affected, you're not going to be knocked down like everybody else. You're going to be able to manage and weather through until society rights itself. Because one of the key principles that I've stated on this channel over and over again is we're not talking to you about preparing for the end of modern society, i.e. grab what you can and run in the hills, build a log cabin and start from scratch. That's not what we're selling you here. What we're trying to get at is that individual emergency preparedness is just to weather those big, significant bumps that far exceeds the government's ability to help you and therefore you're able to help yourself. So there's a lot of wonderful information that's out there on the internet, but you have to make sure that you maintain your aim. Your aim is on continuing the life for which you want to live while providing that insurance. So if you see 
talking about bug out bags. Bug out bags are wonderful. They're a massive industry. You can buy them preloaded for $800 and as low as $150 online. A bug out bag, by definition, is the bag you're going to grab when you leave your house because you can no longer use your house as a residence. It is the big dichotomous discussion that happens in emergency preparedness community. Do you bug in or do you bug out? And essentially means bugging in is... I'm coming back to my home and I'm preparing my home for the place where myself and those for which I'm responsible will weather whatever storm is sent our way. And we will wait there and take care of ourselves and our neighbors and our friends until at such time as society resumes normal operations. Bugging out is the theory that I'm going to have an alternate place to go to. I've prepared that place. I've stockpiled that place. And when there is a significant disruption in life, I'm going to evacuate my family and you know all those that I'm responsible for. And I'm going to go to this alternate location. Okay, that works great in the movies. All these people will tell you, but let me frankly tell you this. There are so many significant pitfalls with that plan. Trying to evacuate from a major population center to a rural area in the time of disruption with a family and a whole bunch of stuff in a pickup truck is a lot more romantic than reality. There are so many things that could go wrong and you could find yourself stranded in between both places and therefore neither having a bugging in or a bugging out strategy. So unless you live in a high-rise downtown condo that somebody has lit on fire, there is really no logical sense to plan a bug out plan. You may have a cottage, great, but for the vast majority of us who don't live at a socioeconomic level where we have a cottage, we want to stay in our homes. So the idea of a bug out bag is people get hung up on that. They build bags for their whole families. They're all ready. They're ready to leave their home. And, and the concept just strikes against what we're trying to achieve in an individual emergency preparedness. Now, don't get me wrong. If your home is about to be consumed by a wildfire, it's probably a good idea to pack up and get out and have some bags ready. But you would have concluded that during your critical infrastructure look and when you examine where your house and a threat analysis of what things exist around your house you hopefully would have concluded that if you didn't a good time to look around your house and determine if that kind of threat level exists if it does great then you need a plan to deal with it now there are things that help build your equipment and your resiliency and one of them is a get home bag and and i hate to use these monkey ears that are out there but get home bag makes a whole bunch more sense because I told you before that my family's emergency communication plan is simple. We're probably not going to communicate, which means everybody's got their responsibility. They're all adults to get their butts back to this house. That's their job. So each one of them carry around a few and a very few. This is they don't carry bulletproof backpacks or anything ridiculous like that. They just carry a few extra things either in the car or in their backpacks, wherever they may be. That just helps them get home. A little bit of water, a little bit of food, and they make sure they dress for conditions. As I always told my son when he was going to high school, make sure what you wear to the bus stop is what you want to wear if you have to walk home the 20 kilometers from school to home. And he always looked a strange look. I said, dude, just throw some gloves and a hat and a toque into your, uh, into your bag and don't wear shorts in the winter and wear decent footwear. And basically that's it right? Just a, but a little bit of resilience so that they can get home. So if you happen to work outside of your home in normal life, non-COVID life, 
then you should probably have the equipment. If you just sit and think, um, where I go to university is about 22 kilometers from my house. So I have to walk home 22 kilometers. So every day when I go, I have a couple of cliff bars. I have a bottle of water. I throw in one or two tablets for water purification and a couple other minor little things like a pocket knife and a lighter uh, and a small little tarp or something like that. I mean, when I mean small, I mean like six by six foot that folds up into the size of a softball. I throw it in my backpack and then I never think about it because now I know that in the utmost tiniest of percentile possibility situation that may occur where I need to exit my place of work, which for me is a university, to return to my residence as part of my job of the family communication plan, that I won't starve, that I have water. I'm always going to be wearing the appropriate clothing for the time of year and the appropriate footwear. And on top of that, if I have to crash for a minute to drink some water or whatever, I've got a tarp to throw between a couple of trees and a lighter to, to start a fire or something. But the point being is it's very, very minimal. I don't it's not in these really tactical bags or anything like that. It's just a couple of quick little things that I throw in the bag. So I understand that when I'm in the city where I live, I may have to walk home. Do I have everything I need? Great. And then I don't ever think about it again. I, I don't obsess over this. I, I don't, you know, lose sleep at night, making sure that my get home bag, the stuffed in the bottom of my briefcase has everything that I need. Oh my Lord, what am I missing? Maybe I have to add to my kit. Like seriously, folks, like, this is not an obsession. Some people get obsessed with it. That's a pitfall that you're going to face when you start watching these YouTube channels. You're going to start seeing things and saying, uh-oh, I don't have this and I don't have this and I don't have this. And before you know it, if you fall down that pitfall, you're going to have an entire garage and basement full of a whole bunch of emergency preparedness equipment that you saw online or you saw in a video that has no link to the very plan that you made yourself for yourself. That's why we start off with that plan. And so the final thing that we want to cover in this summary episode is, is now how do you take this and expand it? Once you feel comfortable that that event horizon you chose, say 14 days, 30 days, and you feel like you've answered all of the questions that you had, and you feel like you executed all the tasks that you gave yourself, and you feel like when you look at those 10 areas of critical infrastructure that you're ready should society lose one of those for the period of time for the period of time of your chosen event horizon so now that you're looking at that we're going to think about we're going to introduce one more concept for you and that's weather anomalies and the reason i mean that is you have to start thinking about how the weather affects this preparation so you've got a time-based preparation but now you have to consider weather-based preparations because for example living in canada and uh, a northern climate, there are certain types of equipment that you're going to need to have that are going to make it far more palatable to exist during one of these disruptions in, say, February in northern Canada than it would be in, say, July in southwestern BC. So none of us know when these disruptions will happen. They're not planned. It's the very nature of them. And so therefore, you have to expand out and consider now that you have a plan, how is weather going to affect and not only just the weather inside, you probably have a lot of personal activities, leisure activities that you love to do that are that are weather dependent. You downhill ski at certain times of year in certain places. You canoe camp in certain times of year. Whatever it may be to make sure that you're able to adapt to all of that. And the last thing that we want to talk about, but actually exceptionally important thing that is the subject of most of, most of my PhD research, is creating and improving those social bonds you have with other members 
of your society and your tight-knit groups and your neighbors and your larger community groups and then uh, linking with those in power. We know that people don't survive very well on their own. We know humans are social animals and that humans are gregarious. We love to be around other people and we love to gather. And therefore, it's exceptionally important. And, and academic studies throughout time have shown that those with a stronger social capital, which is a measurement of the strength of your links to other individuals and different type of bonds, has a positive correlation with your outcome from the disruption event. And therefore, it's exceptionally important for you to just step a little bit outside of your shell, it's, even if you're an introvert, to start expanding that social horizon. Friends, close friends, family members, uh, community groups. And then eventually what happens is, is you start to see an improve, this building of a spider web. And that spider web is all about your being able to access these people in times of need. But it's not just the people, it's all of the resources the individuals have as well that's exceptionally important. And what you see across emergency preparedness is individuals start getting the access to a larger set of resources, both human and physical resources, and it enables them to bounce back and bounce back better at the end of a disruption event. It also gives you a higher degree in self-confidence and your ability to handle struggle that may or may not come around the corner. And other than just improving your quality of life, which it will do anyhow, it also improves your emergency preparedness standing. And as well, you can also consider it an opportunity to discuss with your friends and family what you learned and how you're thinking about individual emergency preparedness. Because we know that when an expert comes in to talk to a group of people, so if you bring somebody in from the municipal emergency management, they stand in front of a group of people and they give a presentation on emergency management, a lot of people will trust them and some people may take a tidbits away. But what, what I'm studying is, does it get exceptionally and exponentially and at least measurably greater when a member of the emergency management organization trains an individual and it's that individual that gives the presentation to their own community group. Studies have shown outside of the emergency preparedness field that human beings will accept and adapt and listen to a more information from a more trusted source than would be your emergency management individual or the firefighter or the paramedic they would listen to you about the information. So that's very, very important for you to look into that set of social bonds that you have right now, how you can strengthen those social bonds and potentially expand them. And another one is the last thing I'll talk about is the linking capital. And linking social capital is how does that group of people that you belong to access those in society with power? How do you pose questions? How do you look to resolve issues as a group with those in power and those people who have the power to resolve the issues? Anything from potholes, you know, community groups do this, potholes to, to flower budgets, to the local community rec center getting, you know, a couple of new basketball nets or whatever it may be, it all works very, very well when you have strong community groups that work together. Now, that community group advocating on behalf of the individual emergency preparedness mantra, it goes back to what we talked about in individual and collective resiliency. You start to see an uptake in that. And once you get buy-in and build relationships through linking capital with those in power, you're able to get exceptional results. So it's just, I think it's an important part for you to understand, an important part for you to work on, and it's a continual working thing. It's just like 
your skills, and it's just like your equipment. It all works together, and it helps you build your individual emergency preparedness. I want to take this opportunity to thank you very much, even if you just dropped in today and this is your first episode, or even listen through all five episodes on this podcast. I greatly appreciate your time that you've given us, and I hope to see you on our next episodes of Inside My Canoe Head.